Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to episode two of the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. Today, we will be interviewing Bayan McDermott. Bayan is the Director of Admissions at Lion Rock Recovery. She is originally from the East Coast, now living in Southern California with her fiance, stepsons, and golden retriever, Gilly. She is actually celebrating six years clean and sober today. And what a way to reflect on her time being sober than to share her story with us. Bane is going to walk us through her journey with domestic violence and alcoholism, which resulted in her abuser going to prison. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this story of strength, perseverance, and the courage to change. All right, episode two, let's do this. All right, how's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We have Bayan McDermott, and I am so excited to have her on the podcast today. Thank you for taking the time. You're celebrating six years sober today. That's pretty cool. Yeah. What's that like? You know, it feels kind of surreal. I spent some time this morning just reflecting on the gratitude I have, you know, for where I am today it's it's a lot different than it was six years ago yeah yeah I bet it's it's if you're doing it right that's usually that's usually the case that's and the hope yeah and um I think that knowing that someone's six years sober is is awesome but knowing where someone came from is a really big part of what we do in recovery is understanding what kind of things people have overcome and I really wanted to have you on this podcast because your story is unique in that you were able to get out of a very serious domestic violence relationship that um, even had legal proceedings involved and I think that that was a big part of your alcoholism and your story and what's amazing about that is that so many people we talk about the disease but we don't talk about the pieces of the disease that don't look like alcohol that aren't included, you know, we, we don't classically considered included in the alcoholism, but it's all part of the same thing, trying to achieve the same thing. And I talked about how I was in a domestic violence relationship and how that contributed to my downward spiral. So today, uh, I, you know, I know you as an amazing sober woman who um, has this great, big, beautiful life, but I understand that it was not always like that. As someone recovering and, and doing that reflection, you know, on your six years, where where does your alcoholism start? Where did you start to see it? Where, did you start when you were a kid? Or can you help us understand kind of what that looked like for you? Sure. So, you know, I, I looking back now certainly feels a lot different than I think it did in the moment. I think I'm better able to identify uh, the pieces uh, that contributed to my alcoholism as they come together, you know, over time kind of zooming out. But I definitely look back and remember, you know, a lot of people who struggle with alcoholism talk about feeling different. And, you know, I had a lot of friends and I had a good, you know, support network um, among friends and family. So there wasn't any particular thing in my childhood that would have indicated a budding alcoholic. Uh, But I certainly always struggled with a deep sense of insecurity. And I remember when I was, gosh, I think 13 years old, I was, 
you know, stealing alcohol from my parents and smoking cigarettes and the rest of my friends were like just starting to notice boys and right. still playing with Barbies. I mean, it was it was definitely something that set me aside from the rest of of the people around me. So I would say it began at a pretty young age, but it definitely developed over time in a way that you couldn't ignore. Right. When you say that people couldn't ignore it, did your parents, did your family, like, what what did that look like when people couldn't ignore it? My family got really concerned about me probably around high school age when freshman, sophomore year of high school when I started not showing up to class, not showing up to school at all. They would get phone calls, you know, where is she? My behavior was out of control. Um, There were definitely signs, I think, more my behavior that my parents didn't didn't understand they didn't know what was going on with me but certainly indications that something was was wrong and something was off but I think they were just so unfamiliar with the territory they didn't know what was happening right right and how much were you drinking in high school I was drinking at least every weekend Um, I was smoking marijuana you know throughout the throughout the week and then probably towards sophomore year of high school I was starting to do harder drugs like cocaine and ecstasy um, throughout the week with friends. You know, I, I definitely found uh, like companions in <laughs> high school and, and people who... Um, You're doing ecstasy during the week? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We were... We were it's a full-time <laughs> we were, party gig. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> was. I didn't have any time to attend history or English class or, you know, do any of the assignments. It was, assignments a, or, it was a weekly rave. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Sometimes a two- or three-person rave. Um, <laughs> but, are, yes. I remember those. Yeah. So... So there were definitely, I mean, there there was serious erratic behavior going on that that began to get identified as as mental health stuff because my family, I think, was right. I, I wasn't going to tell them, you of know, course, that was going on. So. That's such a classic thing. I remember going to the doctor, uh, going to a psychiatrist, and he's like, "You're bipolar," and yep. I didn't want to tell him that I was actually detoxing from cocaine, which looks a lot like bipolar. Totally exactly. get that. Exactly. <laughs> so. And I was willing to take any medications totally. they were going to give me, so I was yeah. willing to sign up for whatever. Totally. Mental I was health like, disease. "Yeah, bipolar yeah. sounds about right. right. Feels like." <laughs> That sure does. Exactly. Yeah, so that makes sense. So what was your family environment like? Did you grow up with alcoholic parents? No. So my my family environment was a an incredibly secure, supportive environment. I came from very well educated parents who, you know, were were pretty strict about the way, you know, our manners and respecting people and really wanted us to succeed intellectually and you know they they honestly were just super supportive loving people um who i guess you could say were that kind of like um that well-bred east coast family right right yeah yeah i think we came from the same place you know in those families a lot of the time if you do well in school, or at least was my experience that a lot of the time, like that was the benchmark for whether or not things were going well, was how is school going? Did you experience some of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think with, it's interesting as I've moved out to California, you know, living now in an environment in Orange County where your um, level of success is determined by the expensive car you drive. (laughs) (laughs) Back on the East Coast, it was where did you go to, you know, high school and where did you go to college? It was all about the education 
and that was an indication that you were a successful person you know is more defined by your intellect and so if you went to the right schools and you got the right grades and you knew the right people as far as you know that world goes then yeah that was a definition of like things were okay right right and if you could keep that together you know I grew up mostly on the east coast but my parents are New Englanders and actually our moms went to high school together I know that's a whole other story (laughs) um but you know, yeah, it, my parents, the same thing. And I actually hid behind that a lot. Like I knew that if I could keep my grades up or I knew that if I could keep the education piece going, that I could hide behind that and, and say, well, well, my, my school's still going well. My grades are still good, you know. Right. When did you know you had a problem? Gosh, that's um, that's an interesting question because I, for a long time, I think I went in and out of, stages of denial Mm. where you know in high school I felt like I was just having fun and enjoying myself until I noticed that I was doing a lot of things that other people weren't doing and I I would hear about people kind of talking about me behind my back in a way like I was a very popular person in high school but in a way that I was that girl who was like so far had crossed that line that people just didn't cross in high school yeah so I think the indication that I had a problem was when <laughs> when I was sent away in junior year of high school. Um, and I was removed when from I my was yeah, physically removed. Um, the, the, I'll never forget the principal calling me into his office and just saying, I don't know what to do with you. Like you are by far one of the hardest cases. I mean, the fact that I was like a case in high school and it was a small high school. <laughs> So, you know, he, I was in a class of, I think, 400, and of the years and years and years that he had been doing this, he had no idea what to do with me. You know, I, I spent hours and hours in the guidance counselor's office, um, you know, uh, against my own will because they were trying to help me. And, um, you know, I would, I would get passes to go to therapy appointments, and I would just go and get high. And it was, you know, it was, it was a quick spiral out of control. And so that was an indication that something wasn't right when I got sent off to a wilderness program and um, subsequently, you know, a therapeutic boarding school. And then... Oh, where'd you go? I went to... Well, I went to Second Nature, which was mm-hmm. a uh, wilderness program I'm oh, sure you're familiar du- with. Oh, I am. Duchesne? Yes. Duchesne? In, in Duchesney, Utah. Yeah. Um, so I spent a couple months in the Moab Desert and then went off to Montana Academy, which is a... Yep. They call it, you know, therapeutic boarding school, but it's really treatment for adolescents. And... That therapeutic part's yeah. pretty intense. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Took a couple of classes there and yeah. earned my high school diploma yeah, from exactly. Montana Academy. So that was an indication, but then after that... Did you want to get well? Like, it was an indication, but was it... Were you thinking to yourself, you know what, this is seriously out of control. Like, I really need to pull it together. I... Or what were you thinking? I was thinking, sure, maybe I need to pull it together. That was probably, you know, some things kind of were a bit rocky there, but... I also thought that all that, you know, therapy and stuff that I got was enough of like a fix that sort of realigned me, got me recalibrated and back on track um, that I thought I was okay. <laughs> you were like, yeah, it was it was fine. I'm ready to ready to put me back, put me in coach. Yeah, put me exactly. <laughs> let's let's throw me back in. I'm ready You're to like, go back. These into people this. are awfully dramatic. Seriously, I mean, I I sort of thought, all right, I took it took it a little far every once in a while, but um, but I'm actually okay. And I I applied for college and and um, moved back to the East Coast. Um, got reacclimated to society. 
(laughs) (laughs) From the desert. Right, right. So, and from the, from the, you know, rural part of Montana. So, yeah, so I, I went back to the East Coast and, you know, things, things were kind of okay for a little bit. So did you go back and go to college? Yep. I went back to the East Coast, went to college um, in Massachusetts, close to home. And, you know, right before I started college, I, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try this not drinking thing. But I didn't understand sobriety. The, it was more of an abstinence thing. Like I went to a couple of meetings in like AA meetings when I was in Montana, but I don't ever remember hearing a message. Okay. I remember... I remember being there, but I I remember going because it was a place I could go and like smoke cigarettes and hang out after curfew. Right. Okay. So I remember thinking I was going to try this abstinence thing, and it lasted I think maybe a week and a half or two. So abs, you were going to do it on your own. Right. Right. Well, I didn't know any other way. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't know that there was any. I didn't know that there was another way to do it. So the therapeutic boarding school, they they did the therapy part, but they didn't actually address what it would mean if you had an addiction to substances and all that time. Right. It was much more focused on mental health. And yet, don't you think addiction has a huge mental health component? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's uh, ingrained in addiction is, I think, a lot of mental health stuff um, that manifests in many different ways. But I think I was being, you know, I was I was being medicated right. rather than treated. Yes, yes, that's a huge component. So you get back, you stay sober for, you're abstinent for a week. Yeah. Then what is, then you start drinking again. How would well, that look like? Then I thought, you know, it was the cocaine and like the tequila and vodka that was a problem. Right. So I'm just going to drink beer and wine. Right. So I had a lot of friends. I, I Let's just put it this way. I, ha- I still had some friends, but I had a lot of friends that were kind of like afraid of me. <laughs> Uh, so I had a couple of friends who would still spend time with me, but I think a lot of people saw me as a liability. So the few friends that would hang out with me still were like, are you sure? Like, are you sure you can do this drinking thing? So, And you were like, oh, yeah, I've been abstinent for a week. <laughs> right. I'm ready. So, yeah, coming back dry from uh, Montana and Utah and, and <laughs> thinking, okay, I got this. And, and I really thought maybe I was just losing it. And now I'm sort of, I've, I've got these coping skills that they taught me. And so, yeah, so I started drinking beer and wine. And, and I'll tell you that quickly, quickly escalated um, right back to where things were before. Um, you know, all of a sudden it was, you know, a little beer and wine, you know, those are going okay. And I can seem to do okay with that so it'll be beer wine and vodka you know I'll stay away from the from the drugs and then it was you know it was it got out of control pretty quickly again right so you're trying to negotiate with the substances like okay if I get rid of this substance then it'll be okay if I get rid of that substance sure and you were made you um it sounds like there was drugs there were drugs involved but you were mainly drinking very very heavily. Yeah, I mean there there were certainly drugs involved at every point in my journey, but I will I I always say that, you know, alcohol is like my my one true love when it comes to substances. That was always like where I'll, it always began and ended with alcohol. Right. Um, and and I was now in college where right. the you know excessive drinking was socially acceptable. I know that's the, it's a very confusing place for for people with alcoholism. Absolutely, because you know binge drinking is just like part of right. what people do, and you can very easily surround yourself by people who are doing what you're doing 
that normalize it for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to watch it from, I have uh, two younger sisters and it's interesting to watch it from the perspective of being sober. I uh, was sober while they, when they went through college and saw this binge drinking, not necessarily them, but the people around them and would think to myself, oh, that's, you know, that's what alcoholism looks like. But it, it, in that environment, people excuse it. It's totally acceptable. Right. But then it, as soon as you're out, that's when it's no longer acceptable. Right. And so, yeah, as soon as you've graduated from, from college and right. everybody else is going to their nine-to-five job and you can't right. seem to right. show up, you know, yeah. more than two days a week yeah. or whatever. That yeah. Is. Okay. I always thought that was interesting, like, if you drink mimosas in the morning, then it's okay, or a Bloody Mary at this time. Like, there are rules of alcoholism that I felt like I didn't get the handbook for. Right. Like, I was drinking the wrong drink in the morning, but mm-hmm. if I had been drinking a different drink, then mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been an alcoholic. It would have been acceptable. Totally. Like, yeah. bottomless mimosas. Apparently, right. that's a totally normal thing. Very confusing. <laughs> like, if you binge drink in alcohol, if, sorry, if you binge drink in college, that's normal. But if you, you know, the day you graduate, if you continue to do it, and there are a lot of interesting societal excuses or, or circumstances where alcoholic behavior is allowed mm-hmm. um, to well, be okay. Yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of situations that allow a person with alcoholic thinking the ability to rationalize yes. why they're not sick. Yes, um, which can be can be very confusing because there are certainly people out there who are heavy drinkers who can do do the things that um, alcoholics do and not have a problem with right, it. Right, right. No, it's definitely it's definitely confusing. So you you go through college. What I mean, did you graduate? I did, I did, and I actually graduated with almost a 4.0 GPA. I did phenomenally in college, which was surprising because it was all through my college experience, well, sophomore year and on, that I had started dating a guy where I was – um, you know, found found myself in an abusive relationship. So I, I look back on that experience of of college, um, where I was able to get almost you know perfect grades. It's like how was I doing that when I was an alcoholic in an abusive relationship? I've still to this day have no idea how I achieved that. It's incredibly <laughs> so. impressive because uh, it was just not my story. So you started dating. Did he go to college with you? No, he actually, um, I met him when he was visiting a friend of mine over a weekend who I went to call, who went to the same college as me. So he was a friend from um, my friend's hometown. So he was visiting somebody okay. at my college. And yeah. what, year, what year was that? What grade was that? Sophomore year. Sophomore college, year of college. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, what did your drinking look like? So it's interesting. My drinking at that point was... Probably Thursday, Friday, Saturday, day drinking Sunday. I okay. mean, like, it was yeah. light. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it was light at that point. It was light at that point. Okay. Um, so, you know, you had Thirsty Thursday, and mm-hmm. then you naturally had to drink Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday to prepare for the for the week. Yeah. But that was, that was sort of the normal drinking, and it was – I look back – at after meeting him how my drinking changed and began to change throughout the course of our relationship so it definitely got it got worse and um it it transformed in in different ways so you're saying he was an alcoholic yeah i well you know i can't be one to say that only he can decide (laughs) that so you're saying that he had alcoholic traits yes he definitely had alcoholic traits for sure okay and so take us through uh how do we get to the place where you're heavily drinking um, gosh, that didn't, that didn't take too long. I mean, heavily drinking. God, it, it like it was 
heavy and then it just got heavier and (laughs) heavier and heavier. But it was probably within that year that, and even my roommates, so I was living in the dorms at that point, and even my roommates uh, started saying things like, man, you're drinking a lot. Like I was drinking Monday, Tuesday, once I was drinking, you know, after classes at night by myself in our dorm suite, right. just watching TV, drinking, right. trying to find stuff to do on a Monday night when everybody else is like in the library right. studying. Right. So, you know, I would call this guy who I had met and we, you know, we had quickly um, decided that we were going to be a couple however that happened and he would be at home drinking and I would be like oh well okay when we're talking on the phone well I guess I'll make a drink and I just found myself kind of falling into that like finding oh well if he's drinking it must be okay I found a lower companion right I found somebody who if he was doing it then it must be okay right right that um the the excuse to normalize what we're doing exactly so uh, what happened in that relationship so um, when I first met him, he was um, nice and charming and well-dressed and pulled together and uh, sweet. And he was, you know, just an all-around attractive person. Um, and he, I don't know, I, I now look back at this statement thinking, well, that's actually not true. But I, at the time, I felt like he swept me off my feet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> in a college no, drinking I, yeah. you know party yeah I get um, that. playing flip cup mm-hmm. so uh, it's very romantic yeah it's very so, sophisticated and romantic all best relationships start off yes yeah so the relationship started off just kind of like this this infatuation with each other just remember it being super intense and thinking wow this guy is you know this guy is great up until then I'd had sort of you know sort of flaky relationships and this was just seemed like an intense um an intense investment in in one another and things you know things were good for um a long time I would say for the first year uh things felt pretty good and I noticed some sort of strange behavior So this guy ended up being super violent and very abusive. And people ask, you know, like, how did you how how did you end up in a relationship like that? And it's like, I well, we didn't meet and he, you know, like, you know, punched me in the face like things were good for a long time. But I do remember him making some comments about you know, me going out with friends um, at college, you know, are you going out this weekend? I don't, controlling sort of comments about what are you doing? Where are you going? Wanting to know what I was up to, where I, I had always lived like, I do what I want, you know, with my parents, with, you know, that was just my attitude. I always did what I wanted. So this was a little unusual for me. So this was a gradual, very gradual, very sneaky. So it was sort of some control about, what I was doing at college. Um, so I stopped going out with friends as often. And I remember friends kind of getting frustrated with me because I wasn't as social as I used to be. And I was a lot of times the life of the party. I was very well connected. So I also had friends who were kind of mad at me because I knew where all the parties were. And they were like, come on, right. <laughs> you know, no, the person is... who takes us out. Right, right. So um, it started with that. And that actually, in turn, led me to moving off campus and moving into an apartment by myself. That's how sort of twisted the mind control was around that. I just, you know, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to move away from the, you know, he's very protective of me being around other guys. Right. Um, so I thought, oh, that's so sweet. Totally. So totally. Um, it means they he, love us. Right. 
he loves me, wants me all for himself. Yep. Um, so I moved off campus. So I would be away from that scene and safe from, you know, the the looks of other men. Um, and then, you know, there were things where things that would happen where we'd be sitting at a dinner table together. And I don't even I remember what I said, but there would be some comment made and he would pinch my leg really hard under the table. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, I thought I remember the first time it happening thinking, why are you doing that? That really hurt. And it was not like a little, like it was a pretty, like yeah. it would leave bruises. Yeah. So little things like that. And then, you know, grabbing my arm to the point where it would leave a thumbprint. Um, so it was bit by bit. It was very, yeah. I don't know if insidious is the right word, yeah. but. No, it's, it's, it's gradual. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that. Cause when I th- reflect on the relationship that I was in, which really wasn't as didn't lead to where yours did but um it actually started with pinching (laughs) oh yeah yeah Yeah. interesting crazy yes because it's gradual you don't opt into a relationship with someone who you know is and and you and it's you're so shocked when they do those things that you don't even know how to react totally well and you don't want to believe it you think well that's strange and you sweep (laughs) that under the rug right I'm not I'm I'm not the kind of girl who is in a relationship where someone hurts them. I mean, totally. I would never put up with that. That's those are the things that you think about yourself. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. You never imagine that that's actually what's taking place. And and there's also a lot of I, I, when I when I finally made my way out of that relationship, I just remember feeling completely brainwashed. Like my mind was just in a. It was completely flipped around. Um, I didn't know what was up, what was down. It, it's crazy the the level of control, uh, the, just sort of the way that your brain rewires itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. In our first podcast, I talked about that you, f- you like, understand what happened to the women in Charles Manson's group. Like, it, you know, totally. I never understood how the women were convicted of doing something like that they were he was convicted of doing something that he never did but the mind control is so intense it's so real and you almost have to experience it to really understand Mm -hmm. um to like at the depths of your you know and your core understand what that is like because it's pretty um it seems impossible until until you're there so what ended up happening so over, I'm trying to think of, of the most um, important details to share, but uh, over the course of four and a half years, the the abuse escalated um, just significantly, uh, you know, each year as, you know, as it went by, just more and more and more um, abuse. And the abuse started off, you know, with, with the little physical stuff, but a lot of the emotional and psychological abuse. And then it got more and more physical, and I'll never forget the first time he actually hit me in the face in the apartment that I had moved into. I'll never forget that. I was like, that was almost like a line that had been crossed, and after that, it was like there was no going back. And from there, it just, you know, got it just got worse. The first time he hit me, we were actually in my bathroom in the apartment and I was at that time prescribed Ambien which was awesome <laughs> um <laughs> for uh, nothing like a good night's sleep oh yeah <laughs> I remember taking up waking up in my refrigerator been taken apart and it was all over my apartment like all of the drawers and all the shelving I'd taken it apart um not known when I combined Ambien and alcohol don't ever do that <laughs> um so so he being, you know, the good alcoholic that he probably is, 
wanted he had to wake up the next morning he wanted one of my ambient he was always trying to get me he was always trying to steal my drugs um <laughs> rude <laughs> right and they're prescribed to me <laughs> there are manners yeah and i had i had very strict policies um following the doctor's orders on yes. when the bottle says my name you can't have any so so he wanted some ambient and i told him i wouldn't give it to him because i wanted it for myself and i had some friends over and he, I mean, just being the, he just being the narcissist that he was, he backhanded me in, in the bathroom. And I remember just falling against the towel rack and, you know, bruising my arm on the towel rack and just thinking, holy smokes, I can't believe that just happened. Like, I can't believe that he just hit and me. And your friends were in the house. My friends were in the house. And I came out of the bathroom and they knew something was wrong. I mean, we were all drinking. But they knew something was wrong, and I had um, I was having trouble breathing. I sort of I again brushed. I was like, okay, that didn't just happen, right? That totally. didn't just happen because like, it's so shocking. You're completely like- shocking. I was like, I I can't wrap my I could not wrap my head around the fact that that was a reality, right? Um, so I just proceeded to sit down back down with my friends and continue to drink. He went to bed. I think I maybe ended up giving him the Ambien. Um, I don't really remember, but. Um, all of a sudden, I was having trouble breathing, and I couldn't catch my breath. And my friends looked at me, and they're like, they asked what was wrong. And I said, I don't know. I think I'm having an allergy attack. I'm having trouble <laughs> breathing. And oh, God, turns we out, are brilliant. I was, right? Turns out, I was having a panic attack, yeah. but I didn't know Close. it. Um, so they took me. They they woke him up, and they all took me to the ER. And and he came into the doctor's uh, the doc into the room with me when the doctor was in there, mm. and the doctor asked me, you know, have you ever like doctors do? Have yeah. you ever you know been physically harmed or anything like yeah. that? And I said no. And he never asked him to leave. The doctor never asked him to leave, um, which I think doctors should always do yeah. to give you the safety and the privacy yeah. that you need to maybe talk about that. Not that yeah. I necessarily would have, but I think that doctors should do that. Um, yeah. That's a really good point. Um, did you have any facial was it your face red at all or anything from that situation that they would have noticed? You know, I don't, I honestly don't remember, but I, I'll never forget that, you know, my, my ex was sitting with me and he said, she's, you know, she overreacts with everything mm-hmm. and she's having a panic attack or she's having mm-hmm. anxiety. So then the doctor introduced me to Clonopin, which was amazing. <laughs> So all of these things that Ugh. lead, you know, deeper and deeper. I mean, they're all just, it's amazing looking at how the all of the connecting dots, like they all just, you know, feed into my my alcoholism and and also my reasoning behind why I didn't have, you know, a drinking problem. Yeah. But um yeah, but over time I mean the abuse got so aggressive that it was it was a regular thing where I'd have one black eye or the other, ribs broken. Um I I still to this day have a broken bone in my nose and my face i i look i think relatively normal but um you look normal to me thanks yeah but <laughs> i mean the, the scars are on the inside um but i definitely uh, i definitely was it got to a place where i knew at one point i mean i was i was strangled on many occasions and was told that you know ways that that my body was going to be disposed of and I continued to tell myself, you know, I can't believe I'm in this situation, but 
I was uh, I was terrified to leave and I was terrified to stay. And I I think it got to the point, and I'll never forget this moment where I finally realized that if I did not leave, I was going to die. And thankfully, before that time, the months leading up to that point where it was getting so bad, where I had been to the ER several times, gotten stitches in my lip. He split my lip open, you know, and I kept having, I kept being very literally beaten to a pulp. Um, I, you know, I, I had started documenting what some of the, you know, I have pictures of my black eyes and the bruises all over my body. And I started taking pictures of all of this stuff to let my family know what had happened to me when I die. Like I wanted my family to to know know. that, yeah, that he had done this, that for them to have a peace of mind, I guess. I don't really know, but I just felt some obligation for them to be aware of what had happened to me. What's what's coming to mind, I mean, aside from trying not to cry listening to that happen to you, um, I'm pretty sure my producer is crying. What's coming to mind for me is the way that you're talking about it is the way that we also talk about our relationship with alcohol and drugs. And that ceiling, you said, like, I can't live with it. I can't live without it. And yep. same with him. And that you took these photos like in your mind you were gonna die from from him from this like in your mind there was no way out Mm -hmm. there was no way out and so you were going to do you know the next best thing and that's you know that that mindset is something that you just don't ever think you're gonna be there right oh yeah I mean I did not it's not one of those things that you sign up for yeah or that you think is I mean telling telling this story now and there's so many details that I've shared with people over the years and I'm always you know willing and open to share the details of that relationship of my you know struggles with substance abuse because there are so many people who are struggling who um, are afraid to talk about these things but when I tell the details and I talk about the story like I still can't believe that it was my life yeah. like I still feel sitting here today like oh my god <laughs> who is this girl <laughs> did yeah. I really like yeah uh, did I really sit through that and endure that and get to a place of acceptance we're like yeah I'm just gonna die so I might as well just like you know yeah. take a couple photos and I oh god I, I'll never forget this one experience where I had I had this <laughs> a BlackBerry back in the day, and I had taken all these pictures on, and I swear to God, this is you know God, the universe, my higher power, whatever. But I had these uh, this BlackBerry had taken all these pictures on, and there was some violent eruption as there normally was. But he took that phone and smashed it to bits. I mean, complete bits, and. I panicked and I took the bits of the phone, you know, the the remnants of the phone. I had two black eyes at that point. I put on sunglasses. I mean, I looked like a complete mess. I went down to the Verizon wireless store, sunglasses on, you know, wouldn't take them off in, in public. And I said, is there anything you can do with this phone? And they they said no i mean what <laughs> yeah when you say do with this what exactly do you mean they looked at the phone and they said what happened and just like i made excuses of walking into walls and doors and you know all that yeah. kind of stuff for the excuses for my bruises i made up an excuse i told them that one of my brothers had an insane party and somebody you know i don't even know some somebody smashed it somehow 
And they were eight, they said, well, all we can do is give you a replacement phone. And I said, can you transfer anything off of that phone? And they said, you know, your contacts are all gone. We'll see what we can do. The only thing that was saved was the photos. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So what did you do with the photos? How did you get out? So the photos actually became a key, key piece of my story. Um, I, I one day, it was just honestly... <laughs> It had gotten to a point where I, it was actually shortly after that experience, but I had two black eyes. I mean, handprints on my neck, on my arms, all over my body. I mean, I looked, thinking about, (laughs) thinking about like the family I come from and what I looked like, I looked like I didn't belong. You know, I looked like I belong and, you know, not, not to talk about stereotypes or anything like that, but it just like, it didn't add up. Like the pieces didn't add up. Right. It's unimaginable. Right. So, um. Did they know? Were were they around? Like, did you see them? My family. So I, I did a really, really good job of, um, I learned how to expertly put on foundation and makeup. Mm -hmm. Um, I just was very, when I was seen, I made it very short yeah um to a point where you know i'd wear long sleeve always long sleeve pants and shirts you know i would cover it up as best as i could there were a couple of times where things were questioned but i think my family they so never imagined so out of this world yeah that's not right that makes sense they never imagined something like that was going on but at this point it had gotten to a place i hadn't seen my family in a couple of weeks and and it had gotten to a place where I realized there's no hiding this. Like yeah. it had gotten so bad that there was no way I could hide any of it. And I'll never forget going, deciding I have to leave. I'm going to die if I don't leave. And walking out of the apartment he was staying in and and realizing that I was never going back. Um, and they talk about, uh, I like to call, you know, people who have struggled with domestic violence survivors, um, not victims, but those, you know, those who have survived domestic violence go back an average of seven times before they actually leave the final time. And that, that definitely was the case for me. Um, and I, so I, I went home and went home to my family. I didn't put makeup on that time and I just walked in the door and I took off my sunglasses and my family just, they just lost it. They, they didn't know what to do with that situation they they couldn't even imagine like oh my god they were completely broken down about it and we sat in my living room and my parents asked me they said what do you want to do and they went over you know the options with me they said do we need to take you somewhere to be safe like do we need to send you away do you want to go to the police so we what we walked through the option the options my father called the district attorney who he happened to know and talked about those options and I decided to move forward and and press charges um and you know my family said we'll support you 100% of the way if this is what you want to do and it was one of the most difficult decisions to make because in that moment I still loved him yeah so yeah and and what what do you think what do you think brought you to choose that option at that time, I was doing it for other people. Okay. I was doing it more for, not for myself, because I was such a shell of my, like, I was such a shell of myself. I had so little emotional connection to what had happened because it had become a defense mechanism for me. Right. I had to protect myself right. in that you way. Right, you had to shut down. 
right? So my my psyche, I guess, had had learned how to do that, and and so I was doing it for other women at that point. Okay. Yeah. And what was the what was that like? Pressing charges? Did that go through? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a grueling process. I thought it was going to be relatively swift and easy, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. we'll yeah. just go through this real quick. Right. Uh, I went down to the police station. They took additional pictures. They they had my I gave them my photos that I um and I, and I didn't I never took those photos with any thought in my mind that I would ever be involved in you know legal yeah. action yeah so when I talked about that being like such a key piece I mean it was amazing that I had that evidence so I went down and I you know, sat down with some detectives and they photographed me and I went to a hospital and they, that's where they found all these old broken bones, you know, my face um, and fresh broken bone. My nose was broken at the time. So they, you know, had all the, these records and everything documented. And they told me that it would take six months. They said, it's going to be hard, but it will take six months, you know, start to finish. Here's what the process entails. Da da right. da. Um, it took two and a half years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So. Oh my gosh. From the time I went into the, the, um, the police station to the end of the whole process, it was two and a half years. And that's the result of, I think, a broken judicial system. That is the result of the defense attorney in this case coming up with a variety, a slew of you know, inexcusable reasons to continue the case and continue the case and what it really was. And I truly understand why most women do not follow through with pressing charges and through through with cases. Um, they were trying to intimidate me the entire time. I mean, there were so many things that took place. Like where, what? Well, they would... Um, they would try and, you know, pull for old, you know, therapy records and things that had, oh you know, that he knew that I had gone to wilderness and, <laughs> and therapy right. boarding school, things that did not pertain to the case. Um, they would, they just try to exhaust you and they just drag you through so many things where they, you get ready, you prepare to face your abuser in a trial and then last minute they say oh we have to continue we need three more months we need five more months so I consistently had to prepare with with the assistant district attorney to testify over and over and over again so did you eventually testify yep I um two and a half years later the the trial date was set there were no more continuances allowed and I testified for six and a half hours oh my gosh yeah. I, I, were, was he in the room? Yep. Yep. He was in the room. Um, I, yeah, I had to look at him and address the questions that his lawyer, you know, the cross-examination, which is absolutely brutal um, because you're prepared to answer your lawyer's questions, right. but you're never prepared to answer the things that they're going to ask of you. So, right. right. Yeah. They, they try to make you out to, you know, they, they put you on trial. Right. You know, somebody who's endured just massive abuse, they try and, you know, point the finger at you. And it's, you know, it's an incredibly flawed system. And, and of course, you know, innocent until proven guilty is totally understandable. And I'm all for justice for, you know, for those who are guilty and, and you know, and freedom for those who aren't. But it's, um, 
you know, it's, it's a crazy experience. And I actually had, um, I had some jurors come up to me the day after the trial was over. So after the last day of the trial is conviction and then um, the next day is sentencing and during sentencing. So he was convicted of several felonies. Uh, and unfortunately, the jury on my case didn't understand beyond reasonable doubt. Nobody explained that to them. So the only the, he was charged, I think, with, gosh, 10 different 10 different actual charges. But the only ones, I think six out of the 10 that he was convicted on, both felonies and misdemeanors, were directly connected to my photographic evidence. So that was the significance of me taking those photos is that they felt like they needed to corroborate the evidence to the actual specific dates of the charges. So thank thank God I had those those photos and I had jurors come up to me, you know, the the day of sentencing when they were allowed to talk to me and they just, you know, talked about my bravery and that they believed me and he actually got up on the stand and testified himself. Wow. Yeah. Talk about narcissism. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. So he went to jail. Yeah. He went to prison. He went to prison. Yeah. He went to prison for, he was sentenced to two and a half years um, because, you know, first offender. <laughs> two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah. yeah. I think he, he only served two and was let out. And he actually, I just got a phone call from his uh, parole officer, probation department um, last year, letting me know that he's finally off of probation how did that feel uh it felt it 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 felt surreal I mean it just I almost was like who are you talking about (laughs) right right well I'm sorry you have the wrong number it it just felt right bizarre like who is that right yeah like I'm I'm about to get married this year and and I'm getting a phone call from yeah you know this from the past yeah oh my god how do you how do you think that your alcoholism related to that because you know the relationship and the alcoholism there's so how many stories do we hear of young women in the throes of this disease who are in these relationships right how did how do you see it how do you see this um these two things being so closely linked it's a great question and and something i enjoy talking about and sharing with other people because you you hear a lot in abusive situations it's not your fault Mm -hmm. which is absolutely true you know you're not responsible for you know their actions and the things that happen to you and then you come into for me like my recovery and my program today is you know aligned with a 12-step program and one of those 12 steps has to do with looking at your part And so I had to look at my part in that. And it's like, wait, that's very confusing because I very much use that relationship as an excuse of like, oh, well, that's why I was drinking. But I finally, when I was ready to do the work, I had to look at what my part was. And I think that the two are connected in the sense that I had an inability to set boundaries. I had a a complete lack of self-love and self-respect. I, you know, I wasn't able to say what was okay and what was not okay. And I think that those are probably the biggest things that I've had to work on in my recovery is developing a a strong enough relationship with myself that I have a deep level of self-love and self-respect and that I'm willing to say what's okay and what's not okay. And sometimes to the degree where I'm now a little bit bossy. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I think I've swung to the other side of the, you know, <laughs> oh, we're of the so spectrum, extreme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's crazy hearing the story because it's just anybody who knows you today, it's, you, you know, it's, you're so far from that person. It's truly unimaginable. If you told me, if I didn't, you know, know that, I, it, 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 I remember the first time hearing that, it just blows my mind uh, because that's not who you are today. And that's what happens when people get into recovery and make mm-hmm. those life changes is they become they become totally different. They mm-hmm. they become who they were meant to be. Right. And I think that's what's happened for you. So did you get sober um, when he went to prison or were you sober during the trial? No. <laughs> I was not sober during the trial. I was I was um I did not drink the the days that I testified. But yeah. And that would have been uh, a mess. But uh, I was definitely drinking during that time. I dove really heavily. It was, it's kind of interesting. And I was thinking about this recently, how when the trial was over, it, it was supposed to, I think, give me a great sense of relief. Like, that's what I always assumed that it uh, would that's do. That's interesting, yeah. But it didn't. It, it was this, it was this sense of a lack. I mean, I sort of had closure, but I had no closure. And then all of a sudden... I still still had all these problems, <laughs> right. and I was, you know, right. Was, Your problems didn't go to prison with no, him. No, they were all alive and well. Yeah, and I feel like things just continued to spiral and get worse. And my family waited until the trial was over to offer me an opportunity to get help. So he went to prison in October uh, of twenty twelve. And then I quit the job. I had a full-time job during this time, which I have no idea what I was doing there. Yeah. I say full-time, like that's a big deal. Like a full-time, 40-hour a week Are you kidding me? That is a big deal. (laughs) I am am blown away. So I quit that job in November after all of this to give myself some more time for my drinking because I had to just dive more deeply into my only solution that I knew at that point. You know, I... Alcohol was the answer to all of my problems, and it was the only coping mechanism I knew that worked. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I completely relate to that. So what did that look like? How often were you drinking? My So at that point, my drinking had become very glamorous. I used to drink out of a, you know, plastic gallon bottle oh of vodka. Gosh. Yes, <laughs> me too. In my bathrobe. Yeah. In my uh, parents' uh, wait, basement. Wait, that's not glamorous? <laughs> <laughs> um living at 28 years old with my parents drinking a handle of vodka uh, in my bathrobe. So it had just gotten, it had gotten bad. It had gotten beyond sloppy. I, you know, I had DTs. I was having seizures if I wasn't drinking. For people who don't know what DTs are. Oh, delirium tremens. So it's when your hands shake as a detox symptom of um, alcoholism. So like I would have to wake up in the morning and immediately drink because my hands would be shaking. So, you know, it's crazy. People don't know that one of the most dangerous substances to detox from is alcohol. Yep. And many people die as a result of attempting to detox from alcohol alone. Super dangerous. Alcohol and benzos, the, the yeah. lovely combination. Especially I was, the combination. I was yeah, exactly. <laughs> engaging that, in. That lovely ER doctor that gave you the clonopin. Yeah, exactly. And clonopin was alive and well in my life. And um, that was that was my happy combination that I, you know, that I 
partook in every single day, all yeah. day. I mean, it was an existence between drinks at that point. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So how did you end up getting sober? So I one morning woke up and I, just as I did every morning, I pulled open the bureau drawer next to me where I'd stuck the bottle of alcohol and I pulled the alcohol out. Like it's like, open my eyes, grab for alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, took a big swig of straight vodka and went downstairs. And my one of my close friends was there and he would stop by, you know, to come hang out with me. He was close with my family, but usually not unannounced. Like he usually would tell me if he was there. So I saw him and I, he was in my living room and mm. I looked at him and I thought, Uh-oh, dun, dun, dun. yeah, what are you doing here? And then I saw my aunt walk in and I knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who don't know that, that is, the, those are the key signs of an intervention forming. <laughs> exactly. So I had sort of been to that party before <laughs> when, when I had been ambushed in a therapist's office for wilderness years before. Right. When I didn't know, you know, my parents were going to be showing up. So it was, fam- it was a familiar feeling. And I uh, immediately resorted to anger and sarcasm. Mm-hmm. I was already drunk, and my <laughs> my my family, you know, read these heartfelt letters about how you know I'd affected them, and I congratulated them all for expressing <laughs> themselves so eloquently. <laughs> oh God! I mean, that's what you do in that situation. It's so intense. Absolutely, yeah. And I actually, it's funny because the interventionist who was sitting in my living room that day just commented on the Facebook post I put up this morning, congratulating me on six years sober. And I had some choice words to say to her. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I refused to get on a plane with her and, Mm -hmm. and called her a variety of names. Yeah, so we had an intervention and my my mom asked who I wanted to fly out with me since I refused to go with the interventionist. <laughs> <laughs> she did not vol- volunteer herself. Naturally. All yeah. mine had to do was offer me cigarettes. That was kind of a cheap date. That yeah, way. you were. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay, well, if, in that case, I guess I'll go. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, God. Who'd you pick? I picked my friend. My mm-hmm. friend, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, my friend Chris. Uh, he... He fought, he was, you know, willing to get on a plane and fly out to Southern California. I think he ended up spending about a week out here enjoying himself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But uh, he was somebody I felt super safe with. He was like a brother to me. And my, my younger brother was there, too. And I think that that was just a little too difficult for me to... Uh, to ask my younger brother. I mean, I sort yeah. of felt a sense of responsibility for him. Right. Were you drunk on the way here? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I immediately went upstairs and <laughs> it, I mean, it's like, it's so funny thinking about the story. I went upstairs. Uh, I had a, I, this time I, I had a Svedka glass. Oh, so it was a glass, but yeah. Was, you are stepping up your right. game. <laughs> Things were good. <laughs> I had a glass bottle. Um, glass. glass. <laughs> you know things are on the it's up classy. and up when we've moved from plastic to glass. Yeah. Okay. All I right. had a little extra money in the bank those yeah. days. <laughs> so I had a glass handle of Svedka in the shower. I was sitting on the shower floor. Mm. and uh, With the shampoos. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I had I had the bottle with me and my mom leaned into the shower. I told them, you know, fine, F all of you, I'll go. And my mom leaned in to try and take the bottle away from me. And you, ne- if you know anything about oh, an alcoholic, you mm-mm. never try and take the alcohol away no, from no. them. 
No, no. So our um, housekeeper, who's actually like a second mother to me, she said, no, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that to her. She was a part of my intervention. Uh, she had, this poor woman, she's been to the oh, party with oh, a couple of us. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, so she went and got a plastic, a big, cl- pla- and she knows what size I yeah, need. So yeah. She got a big plastic glass and poured me a tall <laughs> a tall glass of vodka and let me drink that in the shower while I just screamed and yelled and whatever. And I took, you know, half a bottle of Klonopin and had a couple yeah. of drinks on the plane and was, I think, blowing a who even knows, you know, 0.39 or something like that when I got to detox in Southern California. Yep, yep. I almost didn't make it through security on the way there. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's actually one of the problems with Mm -hmm. uh, my husband did a transport for someone from North Carolina to Malibu. And, you know, he was doing his last hurrah, too, right? Yep. He's on the way to detox. You have to. Yeah, but then he, he had he kept having to explain to the flight attendant, you know, look, don't kick us off. We're going to we're going I'm to taking detox. her to treatment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's my friend had to keep saying, yeah. please let her yeah, through. Please let her through. This is an emergency. So you get uh, to SoCal and what a hardship. And yeah. uh, and detox. You how was detox? I mean, that's kind of a trick detox, question. Yeah, detox was long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Kalanapin and Benzos. Yeah, I, they kept me for a while. Yeah, uh, I got there, and it's funny because they asked me about you know what was in my system, and I'm like, I don't know. I <laughs> a lot of stuff. Yeah, uh, and. And my friends weren't my, – my friend Chris, who came out here with me, he wasn't aware of the extent to, you know, right. the extent to which things had gotten. And they were asking me, are you at risk for seizure? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I only drink on the weekends. You oh know, like gosh. it's – I mean, it was just <laughs> comical. And he, he looks at me and he goes, you're at risk of a seizure. You couldn't – that's ridiculous. You're not that bad. And, I mean, little did everybody know it was that bad. Yeah, so I was in detox for – Did you have a seizure there? No, not oh, no. They had me on a lot of a lot of detox meds. Yeah, um, <laughs> a lot of phenobarbital. Yeah, and such. You know, for those of you listening, <laughs> FYI, if you do need to detox, a note would be to go have a medical detox yeah, because do it safely. Do it safely because they will take care of you. It's actually much more pleasant than doing it at home. A hundred percent. I mean, I was grateful for the you know for for. The supervision I had, I had people come, I you know, people coming in taking my blood pressure yeah. and all that stuff. So, I am um, grateful for supervision. Yes, <laughs> it's such. It's, I, mean, I needed all the yeah, supervision. The I way could get. things change. Okay, so you detox and get sober. What year are we? Two thousand. So that was two thousand thirteen. Okay. Yeah. And uh, did you go back to Boston? No, 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 no. I I detoxed for I got probably I don't know, gosh, ten days I think, eight days, something like that. It was it was a long time, and then I went to ninety days of residential treatment. Okay, yeah, and what I needed you, the long stay. Yeah, <laughs> the long stay. Yeah. Girl, you're telling me I did multiple long stays. Yeah. So ninety days of treatment, and what do you think? You know, some people they get sober without treatment they mm-hmm. you know people get sober in so many different ways whether that's aa treatment um life rings you know whatever there's all sorts of different types of of programs what do you think that inpatient treatment did for you inpatient treatment allowed me the safety and the space to actually figure out what recovery was going to look like and it allowed me a space to 
hear the message that I needed to hear. I mean, if I hadn't been in, first of all, it took 30 days for the fog to even clear. Yep. Yep. Like for me to even feel like my brain was even firing on half of a cylinder, mm-hmm. it it took some time because I'd spent so much time just living in an oblivion. So that was the first 30 days. And I honestly don't think there was a whole lot of absorbing of information during that time. So I I needed this controlled environment to not only help me stop, but I needed a space where I could then be introduced to the solution that I know today. And there are so many different you know, support groups and different ways of getting sober out there. And the way that I, you know, did things doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way that it works for everybody. Um, But for me, that's what it took. I needed a safe environment that could protect me from myself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the one underlying factor about all the different types of recovery or recovery programs is that you're not doing it alone Mm -hmm. that is that is the that is the same in every single type of program philosophy is that you don't do it alone and it um i think if you have that sober support that sober community that you can achieve you know you can achieve long-term sobriety long-term recovery but you just simply you know, as they say, cannot fix your broken brain with your broken brain. No, I mean, I, I did a, I did a lot of stupid things, but I'm a very smart person. This is not something I could have ever figured out on my yeah. own. Yeah, I, I, I relate to that. So you stayed in Southern California after the 90 days. I did. I had every intention of going and being a good student as I had out in like Montana and Utah and all of that. Right. And returning, you know, a new version of myself, Mm -hmm. returning to Boston and going back to the same life. I had no intention. I came out here thinking that the reason I was drinking was because of the abuse I'd been through. Right. That was what I pointed with the finger And you know what? It would have been so easy. What's what's amazing about you and the work that you've done, honestly, it would have been so easy to go with that with that narrative. Mm-hmm. But the 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 narrative that is required for recovery is that you were drinking before you got into that relationship. That the drinking was what attracted you to him in some way because mm-hmm. he was drinking the way you were drinking. Definitely, and I, we forget that stuff. We come out of this this tornado. Of, of destruction and chaos and, and pain, and we blame it on that, you know, the most recent thing that was behind us, when in reality, we entered into that tornado with the problem. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And, and come out pointing fingers at everybody and everything rather than, you know, back at myself for some of the things that I needed to take a look at, you know, and that was all of the work that I needed to do in figuring out why is it that I time and time and time again turn to substances to to treat whatever I had going on internally. Right. That void, that void that, that we share. And what's your life like now? So you got sober. I mean, gosh, it's been through all this stuff. You come to Southern California, you go through treatment. And uh, what does it look like now? My life's amazing. It's super simple. And... <laughs> I live in suburbia in Irvine, California, uh, with a golden retriever. Love it. <laughs> White picket fence. Love it. Um, but it's no, but it's really, it's really a simple way of life. Honestly, I am in 
a loving and healthy relationship today with a man who's also in recovery, who is kind and gentle and respectful and believes in me and <laughs> and doesn't get upset at me when I boss him around. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Did you ever even think that that was possible after everything you'd been through? Absolutely. Not. I mean, I, I didn't. I didn't imagine myself getting into another relationship, let alone that being possible. I, I didn't even know where to even begin to rebuild my life and where I am today. Looking at that compared to where I was when I first came out here, it's just unbelievable. And what what I heard when I first started my recovery journey about just trusting in the process and allowing things to evolve if I just focus on staying sober I've never experienced something more truthful than that and I immediately just wanted relief from all of the things that I had experienced I wanted the quick fix the quick answer I wanted life back on track but I didn't know what that meant and I just trusted in in the people who are giving me that guidance and that advice. And it's amazing if I look back at how all of the dots have connected and how it all has led to something that that is pretty amazing, but so simple and so secure and so safe. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's a beautiful thing what happens when you just work, you know, the program or work whatever recovery you have or do the work as it's laid out without your own twist, without you just you just do it and and unbelievable things unfold. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I tend to be a person and I think I've always been like this at the core. I've always wanted to I'm a solution looking for problems. Like I <laughs> I love to give other people advice and and not in not in an egotistical way or um you know self-righteous way or anything like that, but I just love sort of giving direction and giving people advice and it's amazing how in my own recovery, I have really trained myself to not do that with myself. I have remained teachable and I have continued to remind myself to remain teachable because when I start allowing my best ideas, you know, to get going, that's what leads me into trouble a lot of time. And I need to have a support system that I get to run, you know, get to run things by and ask people, have you had this similar experience and find people who've had similar experiences so that they can give me the advice of how they did things. And that's, you know, probably been one of the things that has served me the best in this journey. That's amazing. And I I totally relate to that. I think the older I get, the less I know, and mm-hmm. the better it Definitely. is when I just let things unfold the way they're meant to unfold. Yeah, that was a very, very difficult concept for me when I first came into recovery. Definitely, I heard somebody share a couple days ago about I couldn't have planned my life better than the way it turned out. Right, like I, if if you left it up to me, I couldn't have planned it this way. The one I heard that I love is, I have everything I never knew I wanted. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so true. Mm-hmm. It's so true. I mean, you know, in Orange County, where you are as successful as your car, and I'm driving a Toyota minivan, <laughs> I mean, you'd think I was on the struggle bus. But, you know, the truth is, is that it's it's perfect when you look for the beauty and the joy and the and you force yourself to find gratitude first then when the problems surface the gratitude if you've already found the gratitude if you've already looked for it the problems start to pale in comparison at least um at least for me they do 
Absolutely. No, I agree with that. And, and I think what I've been able to find in the sense of comfort and peace that I have had the, the gift of in this recovery journey, whenever life gets going, those challenges come up and that discomfort arises, I still know how to get back to that comfort. You know, I still know how to get back to that sense of calm and peace and ease, which is what I was searching for the whole time. Yeah, right. That's what we were searching for the whole time. What do you think you would tell someone who came who was in early recovery with your story who struggled with and the intersection of alcoholism and domestic violence as part of their story and they're trying to get sober now well i think as far as the way to approach that um, i think it's important to find somebody that you trust somebody that you're safe with sharing that information with and I would direct somebody to take a look at not only the relationship with substances, but the relationship in the relationship and how no matter what situation we find ourselves in, whether it's a relationship with substances or personal relationships, that life can get unmanageable pretty quickly. And that I think there is definitely uh, a parallelism with the, with the two in that I was, you know, for me, I found some escape in that relationship. It awarded me mm-hmm. something that alcohol did as well. So there's always a conclusion, I think, that can be drawn from the two, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You can be addicted to people. That, 100%. And frankly, in my experience, yeah. And frankly, in my experience, it's harder to detox from. Oh, absolutely. Yep. I think that there are a lot of things in life that we can find ourselves struggling with. And I think relationships, just like people who struggle with eating disorders, we can't not eat. We can't not have relationships with people. So finding how to have a healthy relationship is definitely challenging. I know for myself that started with finding a relationship with myself. Thank you so much, Bayan, for coming on and talking about this. I know that it is uh, not an easy subject to discuss, particularly in detail, and I'm really grateful that you were willing to do that with us and have listeners um, get the opportunity to know you better and maybe uh, relate to things that they may or may not have told people about. If you're listening to this and you find yourself struggling in a relationship where there is domestic violence going on, please know that there is help out there. You can call 1-800-799-7233. The National Domestic Violence Hotline can help victims, survivors of domestic violence. Chat with an advocate on the website as well. That is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we will catch you on the next episode. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation bi-weekly.